Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Bichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is a Friday. Friday, September 22nd, 2023. And as always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website at whyagain.org, whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, It will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland, Aramaic, Forgiveness. And if you do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those 
to share with us, we'd appreciate you doing so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. Or send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And we appreciate it whenever anybody does that, simply because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's a lot easier to do when... um, we understand specifically from you what's working and what's not working. So we have some people who've told me recently that they don't call in on the switchboard, but they listen by going to the blog talk radio or the whyagain.org website and clicking on that link, and they get in to listen on the Internet, and they don't show up on the switchboard. And So if you're one of those and you do have a comment or a question and you're listening live and have access to a phone, give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. That will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number and I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. So how can we support you? What's on your mind today? We had a support group last night and... um, Actually, we listened back to the show from uh, the 19th and then had discussion about that. Um, I'm grateful to everyone who joins us on those uh, support group calls. Um, Again, these are people who are actively applying the tools in their lives. And the more any of us do that, the better we make the outcome for the entire world. And one of the things that was being discussed in the uh, support group last night was this concept of judging something as right or wrong, good or bad, etc. And one of the people on the group had been Um, watching a documentary about um, child, human child trafficking. And the, the question was, so how can you see something like that and not have rage and disgust and thoughts of abuse for the person who would do such a hurtful thing to a child? for you know, money or politics or whatever. And um, it, it's a really powerful set of questions. And sometimes the question is, well, are, are you trying to tell me that this is not a bad thing or that this is a good thing or that I shouldn't want to change it in some way? And um, 
the the message that we're trying to relay has more to do with um, what happens in a person's state of mind. What happens to our perception when we buy into a negative emotional energy and we and we think we are right to have this we're justified to have our negative emotional energy and the point of it is whenever we have a negative emotional energy active in our mind and our body's energy system it distorts our perception no ifs no and, no buts, that's just the way it is. And if you want to understand this at a deeper level, um, have a conversation with a trial attorney and ask her what state of mind does she want the witness for the opposing side to be in when she cross-examines them on the witness stand. Does she want them to be in calm and comfort and safety and security? And she will say, no, I want them to be either angry or scared. And you can, you know, wisely ask, well, why is that? And the trial attorney will tell you, because that's when we know they will be making mistakes. Now, if you want, you can convince yourself or you can buy into the belief that that's just a special case that only happens to people when they're in a courtroom on the witness stand being examined or cross-examined by the opposing side's attorney. However, I don't think that's really a reasonable assumption. I think what's more reasonable is the assumption that whoever we are, wherever we are, whenever we let ourselves act from the, the motivations and the perception distortions of a negative emotional state, we tend to end up doing things that we later regret doing. And uh, this is, you know, anecdotally you can see this for yourself and you can look up research about this. So the idea is, if I hear about somebody who was doing child trafficking and abusing children or creating uh, child soldiers or whatever, and I get filled with rage, and I run out to take an action based on that rage, I'm most likely, whatever I might eventually say is, oh, that was good that I did that, I'm also most likely going to end up doing things that I later regret having done. And um, so to leave aside the question of, you know, is this a bad thing or a good thing? Is it wrong? Should I um, change this or that when I hear about this? Leave that aside and just stick with the consistent observation that whenever I have a strong, in, very intense emotion active in my system, whether it's positive or negative by my judgment, it's going to distort my perception. And in those situations where there's a lot at stake, somebody's personal freedom, somebody's um, personal injury, etc., it seems reasonable to try to 
to find the highest possible quality of data or perception to decide what course of action to take. So it isn't about is it right or wrong, good or bad. It's about if I act from a rage state, am I seeing things clearly and am I likely to be uh, satisfied with the outcome? The answer will almost always be no. And so the most important thing to do is step one, job one, restore the state of calm, the state of you know honoring truth, you know choosing for love, restore that to my mind prior to deciding what action to take. And the example that we talked about in the group last night comes from one of Dr. Michael Rice's uh, DVD lectures. He's got one that's called um, Empowered to Heal, and he's got one that's um, titled On Creating Consciously. And I believe that this example that he uses in that video comes from the video On Creating Consciously. And he talks about how when we choose um, uh, to pour our mind energy into a particular pattern of thought, that is the thing that creates our emotion. And when we do that, it radiates out from us and adds energy to the field of life and the field of, of minds and consciousness in our society. It always does and it always will. This is just the the law of resonance in the universe. And so he talks about how um, here's a an event that happens where someone is um, arrested for doing some violence to a child or creating child soldiers or whatever or, or some childhood abduction ring and it's blasted all over the news and all kinds of people who've been conditioned to choose for anger and fear and surrender to anger and fear rather than surrender to love all kinds of people are going to have this flash on their news screens and what do you think they're going to feel what do you think they're going to want to do what do you think they're going to fill their mind with? Thoughts about abusing the person that abused the children. And now you've got all of these minds choosing for fear, choosing for hostility, choosing for anger and thoughts of abuse, radiating out into the field that we're all living in. We are all connected. And now we're amplifying not the energy about love and not the energy and thoughts about compassion and gentleness and healing, but the energies of rage and abuse. And it's getting resonated and strengthened in the field. And then people who might just be sitting on the fence maybe would never have any intention of doing anything abusive to anyone else, especially a child in their entire life, all of a sudden, because there was some abuse in their past and they've kind of pushed it down and denied it and suppressed it because they were abused as a child or whatever, but now all of a sudden, it's getting energy added to it because 
everybody in their field is raging at the television and telling these stories and retelling these stories and boy that person should be castrated and you know burned at the stake and all of this and that energy radiates and strengthens and it might just energetically influence somebody toward being more hateful and more abusive and it might be somebody who would never intentionally choose to go out and be abusive so the idea that we're talking about in this work is not judging is this right or wrong good or bad to have children who are abducted or sexually abused or whatever the idea we're talking about in this work is what's the mind energy i'm going to choose to start my activities from right what am i going to choose to do to keep myself choosing for love and centering myself in loving thoughts before I take an action, before I sit and spin in the negative thoughts. That's what this is about. It's not about saying, oh, come on, it's not that bad that somebody sexually abuses a kid, or, oh, come on, there isn't that much you know, child trafficking or sex trafficking of humans. Or This is not about that debate. This is simply about what can I learn about managing my own mind, my own energies, my own thoughts, my own creation of emotions. Because when I can learn about that and I can actively choose to create more lovingly and more compassionately, I get hands-on the, the process of creating a better experience of life for myself and those around me. So, again... It isn't about reaching a judgment or a conclusion about this situation or that situation. It's about understanding that when I hold negative emotional energies active in my mind and I either argue for them or I just allow them to be there and buy into them at some kind of a conscious logical level, what I'm doing is priming myself to act in a way that I'm later going to regret. And that's what we're concerned with. How as, how as individuals can each of us choose more actively for love? How can each of us as individuals restore our awareness to our true nature as love before deciding how to act in any given situation? Or as a way of mastery would say, how can we choose to share only our loving thoughts? Yes, we may have unloving, angry, rageful, overwhelmed, hurt thoughts, <clears throat> And yet, we don't need to act from them. That's the critical point. And when we do is to okay. choose to act from them, 
we end up in dramatically increasing the probability that we will not be happy with the behaviors or the consequences of the behaviors we choose. So, <clears throat> so that was a big part of the group last night, and it's just something that comes up on a regular basis. And it's something that, you know, our conscious, logical mind wants to tell us uh, good, bad, right, wrong. I want to be on the side of what's right. Excuse me for just a minute. So in a unusual situation, I'm on the Internet show. I'm back. We haven't had technical difficulties, but I'm having to deal with someone in my office. So I will just say I am, I am working on navigating through the office, <laughs> continuing the Internet show, and meeting the needs of the people around me. So that's all right. I'll be right with you. So 563-999-3581. If you push one on the phone, we can have a conversation, although it will be a minute or two because I am not near the computer right now. And I'll be back there soon. I was just about to um, start reading from some of Diedrich Wolzak's book, Choose Again. Dietrich Wolzak, a very bright gentleman who had lots of trauma in his life, and he ended up, I think he said he was 50, 55, 60, something like that, and he was actively planning how to end his life, despite the fact that he'd had considerable successes in sports and business. He struggled with constant depression. Will this be good enough? Just a copy? All right. That's all right. No problem. So he had the plan. Someone had given him the book, A Course in Miracles, sometime prior to that. And, um, and Diedrich rejected it because it talked about God and it resonated with him in such a way as uh, this is not for me this is preachy, this is religious, etc. And he went back into his life of depression and trying to drink his way out of it and and so um, then he found himself at this later stage of life and uh, actively planning his demise and he knew I believe he said he knew the part of the road where it didn't have a guardrail and it was a very high cliff and he was absolutely certain that if he drove off that cliff he would not survive. And, and then he thought, okay, well, I can do that if I want, but maybe I'll take another look at that book or something. And he went back to The Course in Miracles and this time as he read it, he read the same words, but it didn't strike him the same way. 
And uh, I think the uh, the result was that he just started reading. He's a very, very bright person, reading and studying The Course in Miracles. And then I think within a year he said people were asking him, how did you turn your life around? And then not too long after that, people were saying, can you coach me? And then within some ridiculously short period of time to his own thoughts about it, he had a full-time practice of coaching and counseling people based on the work he had done through the Course in Miracles. So this is the book that he has put together called Choose Again. And the introduction to this book reads, quote, this is um, Nisark Ardata. This is a quote. There is no other way out of misery which you have created for yourself through the blind acceptance without investigation. Suffering is a call for inquiry. All pain needs investigation. Don't be too lazy to think. And then the introduction reads, Do you pour yourself a stiff drink or a glass of wine every night to unwind from a stressful day at work? Is your current marriage beginning to look a lot like your last? Did you find yourself stuck in the same rut over and over again? Does anger seem to flush up within you seemingly on its own? Does, quote, real, close quote, life seem to be passing you by? Are you numb from taking antidepressants? Do you seem to have everything and yet feel an emptiness and a nagging sense that something's missing? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, then this book is for you. Happiness <clears throat> happiness is your birthright, and now is a good time to claim it. If not now, when? Well, I have no reason to be happy, and yet I am. I am, quote, unreasonably, close quotes, happy. I was scarred from a childhood that most would consider traumatic. Most of my adult years were dedicated to self-loathing and self-destruction. The first three and a half years of my life, I'd been starved for the most basic of needs, healthy food, clean drinking water, baths, medical checkups, safety, and security. The fact that I survived at all is remarkable. How I managed to create a relatively normal and reasonably well-adjusted and happy life is the subject of this book. For I had to discover how to be happy in order to overcome the chronic rage that characterized the first 50 years of my life. I developed the Choose Again six-step process out of necessity for my own healing and survival. And I have shared it with numerous grateful clients over the years. It is now yours to use if you choose to do so. This book shows you how to use this transformational technique to attain inner joy and peace in your own life, whatever your circumstances, by first identifying and then removing the barriers to love, the barriers to joy, and the barriers to lasting peace this can be done regardless of the stories, regardless of the symptoms, and regardless of the diagnoses that you now claim as your own. 
By reading this book and applying the Choose Again six-step process, you can expect to do a number of things. One, embark on a journey of self-discovery. Two, identify and release thought patterns that no longer serve you. Three, banish shame and blame. Four, relinquish the victim position once and for all. Five, free yourself from unconscious beliefs. Six, nurture inner peace and serenity. Seven, enrich the quality of your life. Eight, transform your life for good. And nine, experience the freedom that comes from taking 100% ownership of your life. One of the foundational premises of this process is that, quote, nothing outside of me can bring me anything I need and nothing outside of me needs to change in order for me to be happy, close quotes. Once I realize this, I can get to work examining the barriers to this awareness, the barriers to love that we have created as self-defense. As a result of these barriers, we may feel depressed and withdrawn, or we may be addicted to various chemical substances, or we may be suffering from any number of maladies or conditions. The Choose Again six-step process allows us to remove these barriers to love, barriers that we ourselves have constructed. And in doing so, we find the deep inner peace which every one of us, whether we realize it or not, the deep inner peace we are always seeking. This method is highly effective in treating a whole roster of problems, including things labeled as chronic anxiety, depression, addictions, and phobias. It works with the underlying causes rather than the symptoms. That's what sets it apart from most other healing techniques, such as behavior modification. This work builds upon a foundation of transpersonal psychology. This healing modality is powerfully augmented by deep spiritual teachings from the major religions. Its principles also draw upon mystics such as Buddha, Lao Tzu, Rumi, Meister Eckhart, as well as current-day teachers, Ramana Maharashi, Punja, Eckhart Tolle, Jerry Jampolsky, etc., and Marianne Williamson, just to name a few. The essence of all these teachings is based on the same foundational premise, which is, quote, I am the author of my experience, and everything in life is for me. It has been chosen by me in order to bring healing, close quotes. That means... I always have to accept total ownership of my experience because I've chosen it and I've chosen all of its conditions. In Buddhism, the foundational teaching is expressed differently, although the gist remains the same. In Buddhism, the foundational teaching is, quote, your life is a dream and you are the author of the dream. Close quotes. Once you accept the responsibility that this statement just might, or the possibility that this statement just might be true, then the next step of that authorship is to choose to dream a different dream. 
you can always choose again. Chapter one of this book describes my journey from the jungles of Indonesia, where I spent my first three and a half years in a Japanese concentration camps, to the jungle in Costa Rica, where my healing center is located. I will show you how I constructed the self that I loathed and how I was able to deconstruct it and in doing so rediscover happiness. Chapters 2 and 3 answer the question, who do you think you are? And the question, who are you in truth? Chapter 4 describes the choose again six-step process in its entirety. A process that is applied to any upset however small, to find out who it is you think you are and correct that mistaken idea by reaffirming the truth of your existence. Chapters 5 through 10 examine each of the six steps in greater detail, giving examples from clients and staff at the Choose Again retreat centers. Note that all the names have been changed to maintain anonymity. Chapter 11 describes some of the ripple effects of using the six-step process in families and how powerful it can be when the whole family understands and encourages this way of thinking. Chapter 12 describes some of the ways that the six-step process can be misunderstood or abused if care is not taken. And the afterward details ways in which the six-step process can be applied to a variety of situations, to make the world a better place for everyone. There is a better way. There is a better way of thinking that leads to transformational healing. In the same way that it has already helped thousands of people to obtain inner joy and peace in their lives, it is my deep conviction that the Choose Again six-step process will help you as well. If your daily life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself that you are not poet enough to call forth its riches. We alone are responsible for the gloominess in our lives. The world is gray because of our blandness. If life remains dreary and your surroundings unbearable, the verdict is in. You cannot stand yourself. Make the necessary adjustments, close quotes. This is from Rainier Maria Rilke. Chapter 1 of the book Choose Again by Diedrich Wolzak. Another quote from Rainier Maria Rilke. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So it strikes me to read that again. The quote from Rilke is, Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act, if even just once, with beauty and courage. Perhaps... Everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. The chapter goes on. I'm crawling on my hands and knees in the dust, 
By the fence on my right, a little ahead of me, is my elder brother, Juiced, pronounced Yost. So it's spelled J-O-O-S-T, but I need to remember to pronounce it Y-O-A-S-T, Yost. So I'm crawling on my hands and knees with my face in the dust, and just ahead of me is my elder brother, Yost. We get to the gap in the chain link fence that we've been looking for. Now we get down on our bellies and crawl under the fence. There are some greens on the other side, and it is our job to find edible weeds to use as supplements to our meager food supplies. I'm eager to help. Quickly, I pick a few leaves and proudly show these to my brother. No, he says gently, I'll show you what we want. And then he finds a a patch of purslane and says, this is what is really good. See if you can find more of these. So I pick a few of the leaves and taste them. The taste is a little sour, but it's the best thing I had ever tasted. With renewed enthusiasm, I continue to harvest this bounty. I was born in 1942 to Dutch parents living on the island of Java in Indonesia in a city then called Batavia. That's when the world around us was fraught with tension and war. The Japanese landed on Java, and then a colony of Holland in March of that year, needing resources such as oil. The Japanese were determined to take it from Dutch control. Along with other terrified residents, my parents and my two older brothers fled south of what is now Jakarta into the mountains. It must have been a terrifying time. My mother was five months pregnant with me. They had to leave all their earthly goods behind and their entire social structure was ripped apart. All sense of security and belonging, all sense of having a home was destroyed overnight. In July, July, I was born in this town, uh, Pengalengan, or something like that. It's a very small hamlet just south of uh, Bandung on the island of Java. And for a brief while, my parents and their young son, Eust, enjoyed a temporary security and beauty of this village, high up in the mountains by a magnificent lake, where the air was refreshingly cool and the sauna-like environment of Jakarta was at a distance. But their days in paradise were numbered. It was not long after, in September, that we were captured by the Japanese, My parents were forcibly separated, and we were incarcerated in separate prisoner of war camps. Women and children were in the women's camps, men and boys over the age of six in the men's camps. Some 170,000 people were incarcerated, and 25,000 of them did not survive the war. Despite the fact that I was only a few months old when we went into the camps, and I was three and a half when we emerged finally, I hold many memories of life in the camp. I remember my brother and I finding a way out of the camp by crawling on our bellies underneath the barbed wire fence, not to escape, but to find that nourishment I talked about earlier. We snuck out to pick edible plants that we could bring back to the camp for our mother to supplement the daily meager ration of a few slices of bread and watery soup that we were given. My brother somehow knew what we could eat, and what we should avoid. 
I liked the texture, personally, and the small leaves felt like little pillows. My brother's ability to discern what was edible likely contributed to saving our lives, and I developed a deep connection to him. My very life was in his hands, and I trusted him explicitly. That trust has never been broken. Another camp memory is that of a torture pit. Other little boys and I often crawled up to the edge of the pit. One day, I remember looking down and seeing a naked woman being whipped with barbed wire. She was whipped raw and bled heavily. There is no possible way she could have survived this torture. When this memory returned to me in a hypnosis session many years ago, I noticed that there were absolutely no feelings connected with the visual memory. I had already built in a defense mechanism that didn't allow me to feel the horrors of my daily environment. The one feeling I did experience in that session was overwhelming fear. Although my own mother was never physically tortured as far as I know, the camp served up her own version of hell. She was a very formal woman with high standards of cleanliness and was accustomed to living a colonial life of comfort with servants, and this camp was the very antithesis of luxury. The conditions were appallingly filthy, disease was rampant, and our nutritional needs were not met. Dysentery, jaundice, malaria, typhoid fever, and cholera were very common in the camps, as were pneumonia and other respiratory diseases. In addition, people had to contend with vermin, fleas, and lice. All of this combined with the horrors associated with war made up my mother's world for three and a half years. What he doesn't mention here is it also made up his first three and a half years of life, his world. When I allow my mind to revisit the scenario from her perspective, I realize that she'd been tortured after all by not knowing if the hell she'd been thrust into would ever end, by not knowing if her husband was still alive, by living in filth, by not knowing if her sons would survive, by watching so many of her peers dying or simply giving up. Later, I realized she was so miserable she wanted to die. However, she forced herself to stay alive for the sake of my brother and me, which I unconsciously absorbed into my impressionable young psyche, therefore developing an enormous amount of guilt about it. I believed that I was responsible for her suffering. It would be years before I could recognize and then disassemble this guilt. I could recognize and dissemble this guilt only after years of study and work. Another deeply buried, among other deeply buried beliefs, I held this guilt covertly sabotaged my ability to be a happy and psychologically healthy adult. It sabotaged my ability to form loving relationship and to let in love and to trust others. After the bombing of Hiroshima and the Japanese capitulation, three and a half years after our imprisonment, we were due to be released. However, the local Indonesian population had now turned against us and the Dutch, Dutch oppressors of 300 years. If we left the camps, our lives would be in danger. Imagine the utterly schizophrenic, mind-bending scenario we then encountered. Now we had to stay in the camps to be protected by the very same Japanese camp guards who had been our tormentors. Eventually, we were released and reunited with my father, all of us just clinging to life at that point. 
when the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I was swollen with edema and not expected to live out the week. My father, who had formerly been a strapping, strong man, he weighed a mere 100 pounds, half his normal weight. We were forced to stay in the camps for months after the Japanese surrender until some semblance of civic order was restored. Upon our release, we went to nearby Australia for a short spell to recover, then back to Indonesia, where I lived for the next five years in that war-torn state while it struggled for independence from Holland. The end of the war brought a new experience. I suddenly had a father who had been a non-entity to me previously, given that I'd only been a couple of months old when we'd entered the camps. My mother once shared that when the first Dutch man entered the camp, the kids ran up to him shouting, Father, Father! The beginnings of rage, shame, and abandonment. Here's a quote from Rabin Alameddin. What happens is of little significance compared to the stories we tell ourselves about what happens. Events matter very little. Only the stories of events truly affect us. So Diedrich writes on, One day my father, mother, brother, and I were walking on a boardwalk crossing a fish pond near Jakarta. I was holding a shiny red metal truck, which was my first toy. As you can imagine, there were not a lot of toys or birthday or Christmas presents during the first few years of my life, so I deeply treasured this truck. At one point, however, it slipped out of my hands and fell into the water. The water was clear, and I could see the truck at the bottom of it. It couldn't have been more than a couple feet, but my father would not go in the water to get it for me. The rage I felt on that occasion has recurred many times in my life. In fact, it became a predominant theme in my life, and it wasn't until much later that I discovered the beliefs I had made up at that vulnerable moment. My three-year-old little self interpreted my father's refusal to get my truck to mean that I was not supported, I was not loved, I was not important. Other circumstances of my early life subsequently led me to similarly erroneous interpretations. We lived in a state of constant fear. The machine gun nests, which were perched on street corner roofs, were an ever-present reminder that we were never safe. Violence, both real and implied, was a part and parcel of everyday life. On my walk to and from school as a six-year-old, I had to cross a park. Every day I was met by a group of Indonesian kids waiting for me who wanted to fight me simply because I was white. My father's response to this was, quote, this will make a man out of you, close quotes. While our manservant, Umang, found a, a different solution. Umang was an artist. He made beautiful little statues out of clay decorated with brightly colored seeds. For the challenge I was facing daily, he devised a brilliant solution. He carved a keris, K-E-R-I-S, an Indonesian dagger out of wood. Thus armed, my traversing the park became much easier. After my family's release from the camps, we lived in a house on the outskirts of Jakarta. In the backyard was a water tank placed high up upon a tower. 
my brother had discovered that when we climbed the tower, we could look down on an outdoor shower. And this we began to do with some frequency, given the fact that from this perch, we could observe our native female domestic help in their daily bathing routines. I suppose it could be said that we were young peeping toms. We were five and seven years old at the time. I have no idea how other young boys viewed adult women when they were my age, but I do know that a nude female has always been profoundly intriguing to me. It might just be because I had only seen emaciated women for three and a half years in the camps. Thus, a healthy female body was extraordinarily attractive. My mother's health had been severely impacted by the years in the camps, and when I was about six, she developed pleurisy, a life-threatening lung disease. She was hospitalized in Jakarta, and my father was not in a position to look after my younger brother and I, given that he worked all day, so we were lodged with friends of my parents. I don't remember where my brother stayed, but I stayed with a prominent Dutch family. The man of the house was president of a Dutch shipping company that served the Far East. It was here that I developed one of my most crippling beliefs, the belief that I can be betrayed and deeply held belief in in sexual shame and guilt. While staying with my friend's hosts, I discovered a new way to satisfy my young peeping Tom habits. I would crouch outside the closed bathroom door of the lady of the house while she was having a bath, and I could peer through the keyhole to get some kind of a view of her. I was quite pleased with this discovery as the hostess was a very beautiful woman in her mid-30s. I spent many thrilling moments watching her bathe. One day I was at the keyhole, engaged in my visual delight, and I didn't hear the footsteps approaching. All of a sudden I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. It was my father. What are you doing? he asked. There might have been a believable explanation for my being on my knees with my eye pressed to the keyhole, but I couldn't come up with anything other than, I'm fixing the lock. (laughs) What was I thinking? I was busted. My father chose to tell on me, informing the couple what I'd been up to, and I was kicked out of their house. I never trusted my father again, and I've had many a moment since when any unreasonable fear of betrayal has overwhelmed me. Since that day, I've had a huge issue with tattletelling and having a relentless radar scanning for betrayal. I felt hugely guilty when I was caught, and that feeling of guilt became an addiction that played out in later events in my life, such as when I was married but fooling around. I came to understand this was not a symptom such as infidelity that is the real problem for most people. It's the underlying cause that must be addressed. The underlying cause in my case was an almost irresistible need, craving actually, for feelings of guilt and especially of sexual guilt. So he's saying because of what went on, he downloaded this idea that that's his true nature, he's bad, he needs to do things to demonstrate that he's a shameful person and generate the guilt. And it turned into an obsessive craving to be caught doing bad things sexually. He goes on and says, Another significant memory came during my last few months in Indonesia before being sent to Holland. He said, I had raging nightmares every night, and every night I would scream. 
My mother would come, comfort me, and I'd fall asleep. On one night, I screamed and screamed, but she didn't come. I crawled out of bed and made my way to the living room, where I saw my mother sitting on the couch with a man other than my father holding hands. I felt as if I had died. At that moment, I made up another strong core belief, the belief that love can be lost and that I would not be loved and that I was not lovable. When I was eight, I went to Holland and placed in foster care where I was subjected to minor sexual abuse. The son of the house had tendencies toward boys and that developed into a pattern that wasn't discovered by anybody. My foster mother asked to see what I'd written. When I wrote about it, she ripped it up saying, let's not talk about that again, shall we? And for two years, I couldn't communicate with my parents to tell them what was happening to me. I was isolated from my family and increasingly angry. My self-hatred grew and I became a bully to be reckoned with. My rage was so intense that I was never hurt in any of the daily fights I got myself into simply because no one could get near me. While I was in Indonesia, I had to fight Indonesian kids because I was white. Now that I was in Holland, I was called nigger, close quotes, nigger, because my skin was dark from eight years in the tropics. In this state, the monster that I was, I had no other identity. There was simply no room for anything else to flourish and grow. I believed there was a monster. and every recess, I fought the entire school, which meant some 50 boys formed a circle and they ran at me to take shots. When I was 10, I returned to my biological family. My parents had returned from Indonesia. My brother had come home from boarding school. And although our family was reunited, I remember family dinners were always full of tension. My father drank too much, had a terrible temper. He was completely unpredictable. And while we are having dinner, it would be not uncommon for one of us to get slapped in the back of the head or receive a blow of our knuckles on our knuckles with a soup spoon. I was beaten two or three times a week. For many years, I tended to attract people who had anger issues. And I replayed my reaction to my father's anger whenever anyone around me raised his or her voice. Today I know that the purpose of attracting these angry people was to heal a belief that I made up, to give me the chance to heal the belief that I'm not safe, that it's all my fault, and that I'm guilty. Today, anger does not affect me, and I'm now very rarely even remotely disturbed when I'm confronted with anger. The next section of the book is titled, from Loathing to Nothingness. Here's a quote from Shannon Alder that says, The chains that keep you bound to the past are not the actions of another person. They are your own anger, your own stubbornness, your own lack of compassion, your own jealousy and blaming of others for your choices. It is not other people that keep you trapped. It is the entitled role of victim that you enjoy wearing. There is a familiarness to pain that you enjoy because you get a payoff from it. When you figure out what that payoff is, then you will finally be on the road to freedom. Shannon Elder. So this is the beginning. 
as we mentioned, he's giving the history of a very tortured life, very abusive from a very young age, that left him really on the verge of ending his life when he was 50. And, fortunately for him, and us, I think, he took another he took another path and he started reading and working with the Course in Miracles to the point that he became able to transform his life to choose for love and he started teaching others how to do that to the point where he became a full-time coach in it within a year's time. And we'll read more about this and the six-step process, which is almost very, very similar to the Reality Management Worksheet process and to the Byron Katie's The Work process as we continue. And... So somebody just said, uh, it might be my connection, but we're getting cut off every few seconds, and it's really hard to listen to this story. Sad face. Well, yeah, I I think that has happened a few times in the past few days as I've listened back to recordings. So um, in the past, a couple times when that's happened, I've hung up and called back in. It hasn't made a difference. Jeannie, you just turned on your microphone. Have you been hearing it cut out? No, I've been hearing it very well, and it's awesome. Is this uh, uh, Diedrich Wolsack's Choose Again? Yes, this is Diedrich Wolsack's book, Choose Again, that was requested by Susan Bingham. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming, and uh, I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And have a wonderful weekend. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you. You too, Dr. T. And I enjoy this reading. It's great. All right. So welcome to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Friday, and it's September the 22nd, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this dial in. And then I'm going to read another response from the lady that we answered her question uh, day before yesterday and then added to it yesterday. And she wrote back a little more information. So I'll wait till he gets on, and then I'll read that. But uh, we're glad that you're with us today to find her email while I'm talking. That's okay. Okay. So, uh, Susan, I'm glad that you asked him to read that book. It's actually, I'm enjoying it tremendously. And I wasn't real sure if that's the book that he was reading from, so I'm glad to know that. I'll have to get a hold of it. And a link in the notes for today, too, on yeah. We're waiting on Michael. Five six three nine 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 three five eight one and press one. And I had gotten a note from Michael Teddy day before yesterday that uh the link wasn't working for the download, but I got that fixed. So if you're one of those who had been trying to 
get that download or to listen to that show, it is now fixed, so you can go back out and click on it. And I appreciate him and everybody else for letting me know when you run across something that's not working on the website so that I can attend to it. So if you do run across something, please let me know. And uh, see if Michael is with us yet. We do, uh, you know, we really appreciate the questions and things because that leads us in direction to talk about. And welcome, Michael. And I thought I would go ahead and read the comments from Kimberly. We've addressed her uh, issues a couple of days, and she wrote again just to clarify something. You know, the way that I read her previous email was that her sister said her mother had broken, and she says. I was able to listen. I'm very thankful for the advice. I will set aside time for the mind shifters. I asked two of my sisters who I think were there at the time, but neither recall the event. Um, okay, this is the one that I uh, read yesterday, I believe. Um, when her sister said, you broke her, he didn't mean that she had broke their mother, but that the mother had broken her. And she said she is uh, really thankful for the insight. Yeah. So it's just a matter of the way that I read it. It uh, I didn't read, didn't interpret it correctly. So well, and yeah, yeah, and the the uh, big thing to look at then it shifts things slightly, and actually that's one of the. You know, most common if you look at the chart on the website of the physiological effects of emotional suppression, you'll see that the first thought disorder that most people buy into is that of you're broken. There's something wrong with you. Uh, seeing as how that comes up, Jean, do you have a copy of that chart handy by any chance? I don't have one at hand here. I am opening it as we speak so that I could put a link yeah. to it on the... Uh, okay. Do you have a paper one by any chance? Uh, no, but I can print this one off. No. Quick. Okay. So when I talk about it, and I, I just thought I'd run through that chart. We haven't talked about it in quite a while. And uh, it really ties in how body and mind are one, that they cannot be separated. There's... You know, there was a split back, you know, in antiquity where the church decided it wanted the, the mind and the soul and uh, the world have the body. And so they uh, made up this pretend thing that they were two separate things. But there is no way in the creation that you can separate the mind from the body. And whatever is going on in the body is going on in the mind and whatever is going on in the mind is going on in the body. I'd like to use an example of, let's mention I've got a silver dollar. Gee, one side I've got George Washington, the other side there's, you know, the Lady of Gaudine, whatever whatever her name is. And I say to you, okay, so now we have, there's a head and a tail, right? Oh, yes, there's a head and a tail. Well, let's take the head off the coin. At what point? Where do you split the coin so that the head comes off and just leaves the tail? There's no such thing. They are one indivisible object 
with two perspectives. You look from one side and you see a head. You look from another side and you see a tail. That's precisely what's true about the human body-mind unit. There is absolutely no difference in the two whatsoever. There is no point at which you can say, oh, that's affecting the mind but not the body, or that's affecting the body but not the mind, because they are one indivisible energy structure, and you can't split one off from the other. So if you, uh, if you want to download this chart, you need to put the, uh, the link in the uh, website or in the uh, notes for today, but you can also just go to, heart, or to uh, whyagain.org, whyagain.org, and look for the physiological effects of emotional suppression. And the space we're designed to live Actually, in the Beatitudes, it talks about whose home is in the breath or in the feminine elemental force that was called Ruka de Kucha in Aramaic. There is this, this eternal force of active human life or love. And the best definition now I've been able to come up with for life is that life is love flowing through a human cell, human life. And we're designed to live in, in theos, enthusiasm. Think about the little kid. And, you know, a little kid can get excited about what's in its diaper and the painting it just did on the wall with it. It has no filter on that whatsoever. It goes, look at that piece of art. Enthusiasm, 100%. Till somebody comes along with a fist and breaks it down, and the fist may be a message about something about what's wrong with you. Why would you do such a thing? You're broken. You're defective. That's one of the first thoughts disorders that happens and when that occurs when that disintegrative energy is introduced into the human structure it's locked into tissue and literally creates what we call a chemical disturbance we call what happens in the cell chemistry in fact there is no such thing as chemistry if you go right back to the basic facts of the things you know if you listen to Einstein Einstein says on such things as matter we have been all wrong what we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. Matter doesn't exist, Einstein tells us. We have this energy system. If you go to the opening words in the book of John, what it says is not in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and equate the word word there with Yeshua, a total, total false conflation. What it says is in the beginning was the mind energy or the willed action and the mind energy or the willed action became physiology, became flesh. In other words, every thought you think becomes part of your physiology. Mind and body, which seem to be separate, are in fact a singular object viewed from two different perspectives. And, and not even an object, but rather a singular energy system. So take that idea of mind energy becoming flesh, and then let's go to Bruce Lipton's cell biologist laboratory, and let's hear him explain it. Oh, when you think a thought, that thought, that thing that is non-physical, what we call physical, all of a sudden shows up in what we call the physical, in the realm of our senses, and what appears in the structure is a neuropeptide, a molecule. That molecule 
circulates around in structure until it finds a cell with a receptor site that matches, lands on the cell, and inserts itself in the cell. Now, there's some conversation about that. Bruce says it replicates it in the cell. I don't believe it replicates it when it lands on the antenna. It inserts itself into the cell would be my take. Fine point. Probably doesn't really matter. But in, and if we were on the inside of the cell watching the neuropeptide, if we could see through the cell wall and we're inside the cell and we're watching the neuropeptide come, it lands on the receptor site, which is just an antenna, and it, the energy comes into the cell. And what we would say if we were looking through our normal senses and the extensions of our senses, a microscope and such, we'd say, ah, that's chemistry in the cell. So now literally mind energy has become flesh. So what do you suppose a child is designed and is living in total enthusiasm in the breath, doesn't hold its breath for anything, is tapped into itself as the presence of love, an actual human life. The thought structures go like this. I love life. I'm excited. I get to live in my full power of love, genius, and aliveness. How cool is that? What kind of chemistry do you suppose that's going to create in the cell? It's going to be pretty cool. And then along comes some goon who doesn't like the painting on the wall, who has all kinds of judgments about the painting on the wall, and when they were a child, was beaten half to death for some of the creative things they did. And that parent goes into a rage, much like Dr. Tim was just reading about. What happens to enthusiasm? It shuts down. And thought disorders like, what's wrong with me? I can't tell you or there's how many hundreds and hundreds of people I've worked with that no matter what happens, they come up with thoughts like, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Self-blame. And along with that, there's guilt and there's shame and all these degrading thoughts about self. In a general way, what tends to happen with that energy, and I'd offer here's the beginning of physiological aging or what we call aging, the introduction of a dis-ease frequency, not a disease. There is no physical disease, but there are dis-ease energies in the physical that create what appear to be anomalies on a cellular level, and we think the cell is physical, so we think it's physical disease, but it's really just a reflection of a particular quality of energy. You know, if I'm sitting watching TV and somebody drives into my driveway with a poorly tuned car, and that signal, that, that, poorly tuned, that um, energy field coming off of the poorly tuned engine hits the antenna on my TV set, all of a sudden I'm going to get all kinds of interference in the TV. There are going to be wiggly lines, there are going to be crazy noises, it's going to flip, it's going to roll, it's going to do all kinds of things. Now, I can go in and I can surgery the TV, I can drug the TV, I can change this part, that part, this part. I can change everything in the TV. But if I don't get rid of the original offending energy, i.e., I can think my TV's really diseased with all the things that are going on. And if someone goes out and turns the key off in the ignition in that car in the driveway, all of a sudden my TV healed. It's a miracle. 
Your physiology is no different. I don't care what your disease is. I don't care what your disease is. If there is a disintegrative thought relative to your field, this integrated energy field called a human form is a gathering of energetic patterns that produce this appearance of form. If there are energies introduced into the system that are unlike what supports that form being an integrity, like you're broken, then that energy tends to become locked into the pineal gland, creates a dysfunction. Now, somebody who's got a problem here will go to the doctor and say, doctor, doctor, what's wrong with me? And they'll go down and they'll trace it. Say, well, it's something to do with the pineal gland, but you know, we checked it all and it's physically perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. They'll come back five years later and five years later and five years later and five years and 50 years later, they'll go, ah, you've got the ABC pineal disease. Finally, it's distorted the physiology so much that now we say that organ is diseased. But if you were to go in and do a mass forgiveness process on the dis-ease energy stored in the pineal gland from 50 years of cultural insanity, the pineal gland would instantly shift into being as fresh as a newborn babe's. How do you do that? It's called forgiveness. Well, I've been doing forgiveness now for two weeks. Why aren't all my diseases fixed? Cleared up. Done. Well, let's see. Which of your parents understood forgiveness and worked with and taught you to remove any kind of disintegrative energy and was there to care for you and make sure that disintegrative energies were handled before they ever got to you? Which of your parents was it? Oh, neither of them. Oh, okay. How about brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors? Which which of them were there to shield you? And Oh, most of them, all of them you can remember were into all kinds of thought disorders of their own, their hostility, kind of like that story Dr. Tim was just reading. Oh, and so then let's think about your grandparents. Which of them? Oh, boy, it got worse with my grandparents. He was a drunk. Just like that story, Dr. Terry. Yeah, a drunk. Yeah, he drank too much. I got hit. He got hit, you know. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And what about your great and your great great and your so so what you're telling me you are the end line of the evolution of a system of hostility and fear that would curl the hair on a bald man and you should be finished with that in two weeks you should have that all cleaned up and done well good luck can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people in effect have said, you know, I got five bucks in five minutes. You know, don't don't make me work for this. Don't make me spend time. No, I don't want to have to waste. I just want it all fixed. Yesterday. Doesn't work that way. Maybe a significant number of years before this particular person gets back to that particular thought disorder that you're broken. And then has the skill, once they're aware of it, to access that chemistry in the cell and remove it from the cell. That's why we suggest you go into the practice of the duels. 
one of the keys to doing that process is holding to the space of conscious, active, present love. Who was the last person you remember in your family system or your community or culture that did that 24-7, 365? Are you willing to take the time to develop the skill to do the work that will allow you to literally reach back and remove that neuropeptide from your pineal gland? Now, of course, if we go back to the chart, the child in enthusiasm loves that, I love life, I'm excited, and then when they get whipped and screamed at and raged at, ends up in quite a bit of pain. So they cry. And what does the culture say to them? The majority of people over the years when I've asked this question raise their hand when I say, how many of you ever heard the line, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry for? So what's the next thought disorder for the child that's in pain, that's given up their enthusiasm, is buying the chemistry of I'm broken, there's something wrong with me, and the dysfunction of the pineal gland, and they want to be able to express that pain. What's the next thought disorder? This hurts, and I'm not allowed to feel. And that's accompanied by brash humiliation. I mean, think about in that story Dr. Tim's reading, this kid's young boy is sitting at the table, he's growing, he's wanting to be turned into a man, and here's this drunk sitting here that wraps him over the head repeatedly in front of his sisters, in front of his mother and his, his neighbor friend that just came over for dinner. Thoughts of humiliation, the energy of humiliation, and that tends to lock into and begin the shutdown at the pituitary gland. This is the beginning of going down the ladder of what is called aging and disease. The child, if you just trace, if you just watch them, when that sort of thing happens, they go into an antagonistic state. And they tend to start to develop. You know, They call it the terrible twos. And in that state, they tend to go into things like vengeance and I'll get you and want to threaten back again, especially somebody who's smaller than them. And if they get beaten for that, then they'll learn that overt hostility is a way to control things. And now it becomes that the thought just sort of goes, and I'm going to hurt you. Human life has been pretty much displaced. Enthusiasm, I love life, I'm excited, has been displaced now and anger takes over. And the energy, the thought disorders that go with the anger now tend to lock into the thyroid gland. You know, it's interesting. If you look not so very long ago, like 60, 70 years ago, if, let's say for some reason, let's say there was some sort of heart problem or lung problem and they had to take a young child and go in and open their chest surgeons found this huge, overgrown, obviously diseased thyroid gland and a child of four or five or six and they do a thymectomy. 
because a thyroid gland is only about the size of a walnut or an almond. What they've shown is that a 24-hour attack of fear can shrink the thyroid gland by 50%. Remember the stories you heard about all oh, those that were killed on the battlefield and there was this one guy that didn't have a scratch, didn't have a bullet, and he was as dead as everybody else? That's the impact of intensified fear. And it tends to affect the thyroid gland. So the child in anger, the time cuts up of thoughts, and I'm just talking about a trend here, I'm not saying this is exact for everybody, but the trend then becomes this anger, and, and along with that anger is I've got to hide my rage or they'll kill me. And the fear that goes with that is just insane. And the anger becomes the, meg, the, the medication to anesthetize against the fear. At this point, the anger has been so shut down that it goes into covert hostility, learned deceit. You know, oh, mom, I didn't mean to break your favorite new $200 lamp. Forgive me, covert hostility. When the fear takes over, Thought disorders like energetic patterns, thinking, which becomes literal chemistry in the cell on the level where we think of chemistry existing. I remember I was in uh, speaking at Unity in Indianapolis, Indiana, and there was a professor there from a local university who taught chemistry, and I was talking about this whole idea around chemistry, and he came up to me after he said, I teach college-level chemistry, and you know what? We really don't have a clue what we're talking about, what's really going on. So the fear thoughts, the thought disorders become things like, I'm terrified that I'm going to be hurt again. And you know what I, I, I mixed up there? It, is, it wasn't the thyroid. They're doing, it, was, it, it was thymectomies. It was a thymus gland, which controls the immune system. That would shrink 50% with a 24-hour fear attack. So once one bought, is bought into that, terrified space and you look at a lot of churchianity and so many people in churchianity are living in this next step and it's called propitiation kind of a strange word that not many people are acquainted with T.S. Eliot was a poet and he wrote uh, in a single line a definition of propitiation that you'll never forget and that is what he said was tis the highest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's propitiation. That's covert hostility, learned deceit, based in fear and terror, and then doing the right thing, but being in a diseased state and motivated by an internally dissociated disease to do the right thing. And so, and so oftentimes people are out there doing the right thing, and the whole time they're reinforcing disease processes within themselves because they have not been properly disciplined. You know, we live in a culture that tells us that, child, you spare the rod and you spoil the child as though the rod were something to beat a kid with 
rather than something to lean on for support. And the root of the word discipline is disciple. It means properly taught. It doesn't mean properly beat up. If you can't properly teach someone, the reason behind you want to do the right thing, then you beat them into submission. They do the right thing for the wrong reason. And every time they do the right thing, underneath it, the energy under the surface in the heart or the unconscious is disease. That's why what led the scriptures to say, take care of the heart for out of it are the issues in life. Take care of the unconscious part of your mind and clean it out. Because if you don't, you can be doing all the right things in your head and in the external world and destroying yourself as you do it. If you're living in propitiation and it's one of the most common things going on in the world today. At this point, this person is probably subventilating 80% or more of the time. They don't breathe. You know, this is a stage where I've, I've heard people kind of like it's a big laugh. Oh, yeah, I remember my, my parents used to tell me that I hold my breath until I turned blue and passed out. That's an extreme effort to shut down awareness of what's going on inside. Holding the breath like that is an extreme effort to not feel and not deal with what's being put into the structure as chemistry. And that tends to lead people to sympathy. It's a huge business. I mean, billions of dollars. I was in a store last week looking for a card, and I was appalled. They didn't have one card under $5. It's a little piece of cardboard in an envelope, 5 bucks. The sympathy business. What is sympathy? Well, I have pain just like yours. Let's intensify our pain by suffering together. Negative identification with another situation. You know, if you have someone who's lost a loved one and you're going to the funeral, don't take your pain and pour it out with them or, or reinforce the energy with them. Deal with your pain. Forgive your pain. And, and if you're going to go to that funeral home, go as a space of conscious, active, present love. They're able to hold the space and bring solace and healing to the person that perhaps is suffering. Bring the state of your human life, that conscious, active, present love that even stands with enthusiasm in the presence of death. The next step down the ladder of sympathy, now that the thought disorders are well ingrained, deeply ingrained, habitual, next comes grief to affect and shut down the pancreas and the adrenals. Remember back about 25 or so years ago, we had a, a woman that came to Heartland to be on the support team. She was on the team for a year. And everybody always took care of making sure she was well fed. Because if she didn't eat, she was a terror. She had a blood disorder or a sugar disorder. And she'd go hypoglycemic, and when she'd go hypoglycemic, she'd bite your head off. So if she started to get testy, somebody'd go grab some food and give it to her. The day we did a breath workshop and she touched into the pain, the grief, 
that was unresolved for her over the fact that the love of her life, her husband, was in a car accident and was given blood tainted with AIDS and died. The day she did that breath session, the day she opened that content from her mind and was able to look at Square in the face and process through it, that was the end of her sugar disorder. It didn't matter. She could fast. You know, we usually did a three-day fast at the beginning of each intensive. She couldn't do that. Once we went through that, she could do that with no problem whatsoever. It was easy. So grief, thought disorders like I'm sad, I'm overburdened, and I'm hurt. And, and that's as a result of my own unconscious self-imposition of dissociation, dissociated pain. And that's what tends to shut down the pancreas and the adrenals. So blood sugar is rampant throughout our world. And the, the most common complaint, I'm told, people going to medical doctors is, I'm tired, I don't have any energy. The adrenals are shot because they've been overloaded with this pain, these thought disorders. Now, over time, these things are going to have a physiological effect where somebody with their microscope can look and go, oh, we see it now. Before it becomes physiological, then that takes years. They call it aging. So you're getting old. No, you're not getting old. You've been carrying this toxic load for so long, your structure's starting to break down. There's no such thing as aging. It's a fraud. It's the load being carried on the tissue that causes the tissue to look like it's aging. And the fact that it happens over time, it's easy to go, oh, you see, it's time that did that. Well, if time does that, then everybody would have to have the same diseases over time. If this is, oh, that's just a disease of aging? Well, everybody who's, you know, it's a cute story about the guy that goes to the doctor and the doctor's looking at his leg and got a problem with it. He explains all the symptoms, what's going on. Doc looks at him, just kind of says, says well, you know, um, your leg's just getting old. He says, but Doc, it's the same age as the other one. It hasn't got to do with time. It's got to do with the assault and the primary assaults. Yes, of course, there are physiological interactions. You bump into something, you're in an accident, cancel the thought, and those things occur. But the assault, the main assault, comes with the mind energy, this list of thought disorders. And if you print off this chart, you'll see on the right-hand side, you can see the arrow going right down into what's called aging and disease. It's learned, self-imposed, buying into mind energy that is the head of the coin destroying the tail. Now, when somebody gets to the point where the pancreas adrenals, they're so weak, they're so burdened, that now it's kind of like helpless and hopeless, apathy. Oh, well, it's hopeless. There's nothing meaningful I can do. Why are they doing this to me again? I'm hopeless. It's helpless. I'm a victim. I'm alone. This tends to impact and destroy the spleen. We're just about to the bottom where someone's getting ready to check out. The next step is just mass unconsciousness. I, and, and the thoughts go like, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm in a fog. I don't understand. And this shuts down the reproductive organs. You look at the massive numbers of people 
who cannot conceive, and you see a mass impact of that kind of burden being carried on the whole organic system. So one who's buying into the thought disorders is dropping down the pathway. One who wants to heal is going to have to move up the pathway. And if you print off the chart on the left-hand side, you'll see the arrow going up from the bottom up, and now we're looking at youthing and healing. What's that going to look like? It's going to look like, I don't know, then I'm going to do some research, I'm going to do some learning and some understanding, I'm going to build the brain cell so I do know. Yes, I now have some tools. There's something I can do about it. Now you're going to start to get more and more symptoms going as you start to throw that energy off. That sadness, that grief is going to have to process out of the structure. And all of the thought disorders, all of the energetic patterns of pain are going to have to be removed. You're going to have to reclaim your power from turning it over to those who forced you. And as you learn to do the right things for the right reason, you give up propitiation and you stand as a space where you do what's in harmony with truth and what's in harmony with love, no matter what anybody else is saying. Then one's going to countenance their, their mind energy, their thoughts of terror, of having been terrorized oftentimes by a power person, by a parent. They're going to dip, there's going to be a tendency to dip in and out of each of these thought disorders as they're cleaned up, especially if they're generational patterns, which usually they are. There's going to come a point where people are going to start to, going to get to confront their anger and stop playing the game of blame that their anger is about someone else. When anger comes up, instead of, oh, I'm, I'm looking at Harry, he's the reason I'm angry. I'm never going to think about myself or question why I'm angry, what my anger is, and that my anger belongs to me and is being produced by my physiology and is destroying me. People who will never confront that will never heal. They will tend to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into pain, and it will be unresolvable. If you have anger come up and you... You let go of thinking about Harry and you stop and you go, hmm, here I am with my anger again. Hmm. Maybe I need to stop lashing out at the people around me. I wonder why I've destroyed so many relationships. Oh, no, no, it was all about them. It was they that did that. It wasn't me. Yeah, right. Sure. There comes a point of taking responsibility. And be careful that responsibility doesn't go into self-blame. This isn't about blame. It's just about being honest with yourself and recognizing, oh, I see what I've done. And only when you can come into conscious relationship with what you've done can you change the thought disorders behind it. And there'll come a point where you have to give up the blame game and the thought disorders of rage and the belief that someone else is going to harm you. Coming back to feeling, letting go of the unconsciousness, letting go of the trauma-based interactions that happened in early life, allows the load to be taken off of the pituitary, the pineal, and get back to the truth where you've 
You've made a space in your physiology for your true essence, which is love, to come into expression through your physiology rather than trying to come through all these thought disorders that are stored in tissue structure right down to including the genes that need to be cleaned out because the thought disorders have been going on for generations and generations. Remember that story of the Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years? And that was not a story about this group of people who were lost in a 35-square-mile area for 40 years. That's ridiculous. These people knew about astronomy. Look at their writings. They understood where the sun rose and where the sun set. If they'd wanted to get out of the desert, if it were about being in a hot, sandy place where it was about 35 square miles the size of that desert, they'd have gotten up in the morning and started to follow the sun east, and they'd have been out of there within a couple of days. But remember what had to happen in order to get out of the desert. And the desert is just to get out of the state of unconsciousness. The very bottom thing on this chart that we're talking about, the last thing is the unconsciousness. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm in a fog. I don't understand. That's the desert. What had to happen to get out of the desert? Read that passage. It's a metaphor for the journey of life. And you remember what they said is, the old generation had to die off. That didn't mean everybody in old physical bodies had to physically die. The root of the word generation is genari. It means cause. You have to go in and lift every thought disorder off of every organ in your structure. Every thought disorder of every generation will leave your structure available to be fueled by active present love and all interference patterns are gone. All of a sudden, the car out there in the driveway with the poorly tuned engine is shut off. And the picture miraculously clears up. The physical diseases disappear. The mental, the emotional diseases, the addictions disappear. But you have to develop the skill of accessing your own unconscious dynamics. You have to quit your religion. And for anybody who's living down at the bottom of this chart, they are card-carrying members of the one-world religion of blame. It's all somebody else's fault. When they're in pain, when they're in turmoil, when they're in trauma, there are whole conversations about somebody else. It's not about themselves. You gotta learn to talk about me, yourself. And as you let go of those thought disorders, you take the load off of tissue, you take the load off of the mind, you take the load off of the emotions, and now there's room for Christ to return to earth. That's not a religious idea. The word Christ there represents the mind of love in you. Remember Paul talked about mind of Christ, your hope of glory. It wasn't the mind that Yeshua had. It's the same mind that he used, the mind of love, but it was the mind of love in him that he used. It's the mind of love in you that you need to use, not the mind of thought disorders and generational patterns and cultural insanity. So coming up the other side of the chart is you thing and healing. And you get back to, I love life, I'm excited. In the awesome. When you when you start letting go of those thought disorders, I mean, I, I watch so many people in so much pain and turmoil. It's like, but you have a human life. What are you talking about? What are you whining about? 
you have a life. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. But burdened with generations and generations and generations of unresolved pain and trauma, living in that desert is a tough place to live. That's living in the land of unconscious co-creation. You know, we have a workshop called On Creating Consciously. And it's all about the principles of how to create your life consciously rather than out of those unconscious dynamics. And it takes adapting to and doing your work. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm too busy. Oh, okay, that's fine. Suffer and die. That's, you know, that's the pathway. That's what, what happens. That's why they suggested tithing. I suggest to people that they tithe. And, and tithing, you know, a lot of churchianity tithing is about giving somebody money. That's not what I'm talking about. I like to use the acronym TIME, T-I-M-E. TIME, yes. You get to the point where you spend 2.4 hours a day doing your work. Intelligence. You start to use your original intelligence, not mine. I can be here to support you, offer you some, you know, been there, done that, here's what you can do about it. But ultimately, it's your original intelligence that we're here to support awakening. So time, intelligence, money. Yes, dedicate 10% of your income to what supports you spiritually and doing your spiritual work. And then the last in the acronym is energy. Yeah, put 2.4 hours a day of your original energy. Not, you know, I did my 14-hour day today and I came home and I'm exhausted and so I'm going to go and have a nap, I mean meditate for an hour. No, it's your original vital energy that you want to put into this. Sure, everybody has to earn a living. You have to dedicate that energy there, but put that or some of that original energy into your internal work and stand in the space of willingness to process through whatever it is that the thought disorders that have resulted in the situations in your business life, in your financial life, in your relationship life, in your physical health, your mental health, your emotional, whichever arena it's in, invest in that. Invest in yourself. So, again, if you're tuned in late, I suggest that you, uh, you tap into the uh, – the chart on our website, go to whyagain.org, the physiological effects of emotional suppression. You can print that off free. And you know, at, the, at the bottom of the page, there's a note about what we call, so people can comprehend it, the non-being mind. And the non-being mind is the self that we think we are that's based in hostility and fear. Once being... Once active present love by these thought disorders is knocked out of one's life, they're dead. You might remember with Yeshua, there's a, a man who's, boy, I like what you're doing, Yeshua, I'm going to come with you, but, but first I need to go bury my mother and my father. That didn't mean his mother and father just died and he was going to dig a grave. In that culture, the oldest son had an obligation to take care of his parents until their death and burial. So he was putting, oh, I'm too busy. I don't have time. I have other obligations. And, and what did Yeshua say to him? Let the dead bury the dead. 
Until one is awake in their physiology as active present love, they are dead to, to their human lives. And once that death of being occurs, physical death takes approximately, you know, plus or minus 100 years. 90 years is a pretty good shot for most people. And, and I'd offer death is a result of purposely instilled, unconsciously driven, non-human insanity based in fear and or hostility. Healing, to return to our natural state, love and enthusiasm, is the systematic ongoing removal or forgiveness of everything unlike your true nature and the return to being 24-7-365. It's not only possible, but inevitable for every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And new thing is climbing up and out of the insanity. That's the last paragraph on the chart. So that probably will, yeah, I was just going to say, that'll probably stimulate a few questions. So, Miss Jeannie, you've got some hands up. Let's say hello. We do. The first one's Aries Code 757. I believe this is Dan. You're on the air. Hey there. Hey, Dan. How do you be, young man? I'm doing great. I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm cooking some carrots and celery. I actually um, I ended up getting COVID a little bit after we did that fill uh, point session and Ouch. stuff's been weird. But Bless your heart. Good and healing though. Thank you. Um, so carrying on, am, doing your work, and keep breathing. Yeah, a lot, and I was doing a lot of worksheets this morning and getting excited about it, and then I thought, okay, I know what's coming, you know? <laughs> Next layer? But Yeah, something's going on, and because I, I, I was getting real enthusiastic about it and excited, and it all made sense, and I called uh, a friend to talk about it, and by the time I called, I was starting to feel a little bit kind of crummy and confused and dizzy, and so... All right. It is, but I, I uh, hey, I did a worksheet yesterday that really um, kind of I don't know what the word is. It felt powerful to me, so I wanted to share the story if that's all right. Please do tell me about it. What's happening? So when I was a little kid, you know, I have memories of kind of what I was like the the joyful. Uh, uninhibited, expressive, you know, loving, uh, that energy we talk about. And there's a story of uh, I was about, you know, three or four or whatever. We went to, uh, me and my parents, we went to a Chinese restaurant and we got um, food and they had fortune cookies. So I understood the concept of a fortune cookie, but of course I couldn't read. I was three. So I got my fortune and they were saying, what does it say? What does it say, Danny? And, and uh, I couldn't read. And I said, it says, calm down, Danny. So I was <laughs> keyed into the, I'm supposed to calm down. You know, I'm supposed to keep this stuff under wraps. I need to suppress it. I need to push it down. I, un- I understood the assignment that it was, you know, I was embarrassing and uh, creating, you know, shame just by being an uninhibited, uh, joyful little kid. Yeah, that's it. It's crazy, isn't it? So my goal on the worksheet, I realized I've carried this goal for, uh, I guess, you know, I'm 35. That was, I was about three, at least 32 years of calm down Danny. The goal is to calm down, suppress, 
you know, control everything, push it down, make sure uh, I don't embarrass myself, avoid humiliation, avoid humiliating other people. And that just, uh, that Talk was sort about of shutting down the life force. Right. It's like the direct yeah. mission, just in my own words, of, you know, calm down, turn it off, stop it. Um, so a good mind shifter for that one would be something along the lines of it's safe and healing and people approve of me and love it when I'm in total enthusiasm and excitement. Let me write that down. Or I can just get to remember the gist of it. It's safe and healing. Jeannie's probably already got it written down. Well, you went a little bit fast. It's safe and healing, and people love it when I'm in total enthusiasm is what I got. Love it and approve of me when I'm in total enthusiasm. That would do it. See what that resonates. That might take you back through some specifics where other thought correlated thought disorders were implanted or, or you bought into them and and give you a chance to see where there's perhaps some other work to be done. Well, so after I did that, I start, um, and I want to uh, give time for the other person too that's calling in, but I, I started kind of inhabiting this, like remembering the faces and the experiences of when I was in elementary school, remembering that whole environment and right. the people I felt felt teased by, felt not approved of, and uh, so that whole that brought up a whole other layer that I've kind of imp- superimposed onto my life today of trying to get people to like me, trying to get uh, power over other people as a thinking that other people hold my self-esteem in a way. Hmm. Well, it sounds like you're really right on track with your work, my friend. Yeah, I guess so. It feels good. It feels then it goes into feeling scary and um I just wanted to ask a quick question. I forgot about uh, you gave me two uh mind shifters coming out of the still point session we did last time. And right. Yeah, are those and I think I probably asked them, but those are kind of you can just sort of work on at any time, right? Like it doesn't have to be yeah. an hour at a time. It can just be sit down for 10 minutes and do it and then sit down the next day or do it for two hours or whatever, right? Absolutely. And what I suggest is if it's something that, you know, you know what's really keying into a major issue, it's something that's really something you seriously need to work on, that's when you want to set aside a given, you know, I'm going to take out a block of two hours, I'm going to turn my cell phone off and I'm just going to write. Or if it's, you know, something that's really a significant issue in your life, you might take three or four hours, block it off. And and what, what I've found is when you use the mind shifter, the more time you'll give yourself, the deeper you can drill down into those unconscious dynamics and get it out on the page. Yeah, well, it's seeming it's feeling like all the stuff that's coming up is eat into like major that's issues. Awesome. Um, so I'm realizing, and I'll just I'll share this, and then I'll stop. But I mean, a lot. Of this, so then it goes into the, you know, my classmates. There was a lot of uh, 
you know, when I was, this is again, little kid, five, six, seven rivalry right. with, the, with the boys and girls. And I felt rejected and humiliated and held in contempt by the, you know, the girls in my class. And it's like, I'm still carrying that around. I'm still trying to, I'm trying to get adult women to approve of me today to make up for feeling ashamed of myself as a little boy when I was six, you know, it's like, that energy is still going of, of uh, other humans I haven't seen in 30 years that I'm unconsciously blaming them for my low self-esteem and feeling humiliated and not included as if they, they have to do something in order for me to heal. And they don't, it's all in me. So I'm kind of grateful that's come up. Awesome. Well, that's where, you know, applying forgiveness to the thought disorders you hold about yourself, you know, and that's, that goes right back back to that original power person thing of you're broken, you know whatever the variation on the theme of you're broken is, and in your case it was that calm down, Danny, is that yeah. message of you know there's something wrong with you, and I mean for a kid of three to just be out there like we have this social structure that says oh there's a bad parent if this kid wow to me when our granddaughter's out there and rocking it's like Go for it, girl. Right. Embarrassment comes up for me. Guess who's got a problem? I do. It's the adult that has a problem. Right. So my parents didn't have that tools or awarenesses. And, like, so, and it bled on to me, I guess. Something happened. Well, remember, you know, in, in the power, remember the power person dynamic Three things happen for a power person dynamic to be installed in a child's mind, and it's usually something that comes from a parent. And the three things are that the adult, the parent, wasn't functioning out of love. They had more power over the child than the child did, and the child thought of it as survival. When that occurs, literally, as a child, the child's energy field is just like laid, sliced wide open, and... The child becomes like a sponge. Every energy in the environment is simply like a sponge just sucked in. You know, if, if you know, mom or dad's sitting there in rage and embarrassment and those dynamics, that dynamic opens in the child, then that energy of rage and embarrassment becomes part of the foundational thought system and energy system of the child until that's forgiven. Yeah, and I I know I've gone through a lot of my life, you know, doing some level of work, but sort of still blaming my mother, like almost feeling like she's in my, you know, I used to have this thought, she's in my nervous system, she's in my physiology, why won't she leave me alone? Uh, and, and it kind of makes sense, but it's still today wanting to let go of holding her and blame going on in me today. Right. So... When all of that occurred as a child, the the energy of the parent was simply there. The child drew it in, and it it creates that kind of an impression. You know, one of the reasons why there are only you know once one has this power person dynamic installed in the mind, there are only three behaviors possible, and they relate directly to that power person experience and the the behavior depends on the level of stress one is under when there's no stress we'll do whatever we did to get along with our power person when stress builds 
will will shift into the automatic decision system kicks in in the mind and kicks us over into doing whatever we did to resist and survive with our power person. And then because, and this would, to me, this would relate to your thinking of, gee, that she's in there. It's, it's like that power person was our God. Right. And so when the stress is up in the chip, when I'm ultra stressed, what I'm going to do is look into my unconscious and go, what did God do? When the stress was up and the chips were down. And that's the behavior that right. I do. So, so the third level of behavior when I become ultra-stressed is I'll do what my power person did that I hated the most because that's how yeah. they won over me. And in that state, I'm looking to win. I'm unconscious, and I just go, oh, okay. So the, and, you know, most often it's a thing that people said, boy, I'm never going to be like that with my kids or with my spouse. or you know, And it's exactly what then, takes over. Right. Right. And that's the reason for doing the whole the power person worksheet that comes in the codependence work and the codependence worksheet. There are two different specifics that work in that arena, but yeah, you ultimately want to get that cleared out. And as long as that power person dynamic is still, let's say, alive and well inside, then when one is in relationship with someone and they do a behavior that violates a goal that they held for their power person, then that person that they're in relationship with, this is kind of like the coup de grace in understanding the power person dynamic. Now, this person I'm in relationship with, I put in my power person file and everything that I experience of them has to filter through the way I experience my power person. So I'm actually no longer in relationship with that person. It's like it, there's, a, there's a saying in the culture that honors this, although, you know, it's rarely understood what's really going on, but everybody's heard the saying, oh, the honeymoon is over. What does that mean? Right. The, what it means is the person I'm in relationship with did something that violated a goal that I held, a serious goal I held for my power person, and now I've locked them into my power person file. I'm actually no longer in relationship with them. Everything that I experience to them is filtered through all the dynamics of my power person, and I'm right back in full-blown relationship with my power person in my mind, and I project, I project that internal image in my mind onto them, and I think that I'm still in relationship with them when, in fact, I'm not even in relationship with them anymore. I may be in the same house, in the same bed, blah, 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 but I'm, I'm back in relationship with my power person. And that's where so much, again, that's where the, you know, the honeymoon is over happens. Cause yeah. And like that thing of, because I'm going to recreate the whole situation again so that we get it right this time and meet my goal, not realizing that if I create the whole situation again, I'm going to be miserable. <laughs> That's why the core of forgiveness is canceling goals. The genius of Yeshua coming up with that, that yeah. the core of forgiveness and the way that you access the unconscious dynamic to clean it up is by canceling the goal is just genius when you understand how yeah. the mind works. Yeah. Well, that's it, sir. I'm delighted you're on track and rock and roll. Thank you. I am sorry to the person that was in line that I spoke too long. 
Well, you he didn't said speak that too was long. absolutely you were, fine. You, you were perfectly okay. on track, and tomorrow it'll be his turn. And if somebody else is is waiting, then we'll spend time with him until it's complete. And each person, when they're here, they get 100% of the attention. So you're right on track. On Monday. Absolutely no apology needed. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Appreciate friend. Well, we're 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 going to get cut off by the uh, the um, blog talk radio any second now. So I'm just going to say thanks for uh, for sharing those dynamics and bring that up. That was that was a great uh, completion point for the uh, physiological effects of emotional suppression. Thanks. I appreciate it.